Well, I wanted to uh, start off by saying thank you to everyone, but I feel like Dave thanked everyone so much that I'm not allowed to say thank you anymore. But more thank yous are always okay, Dave says. Well, I wanted to start off by thanking Compton and Karis. Sorry, Kendrick, I should have took that off sooner. But I wanted to say thanks to Compton and Karis. I was kind of, uh, I guess, a little mean to them. I asked them to do a new song and to make up hand motions for it without, uh, I guess I gave you enough warning. I told you on Monday or Tuesday. It was before Christmas, so I didn't throw it at them last minute. But I wanted a new kids song this week that went kind of with our sermon, and that new kids song came from the New City Catechism, which is 52 Questions and Answers for Our Hearts and Minds. And that's by uh, the Gospel Coalition and Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Is that their actual name? i got to check. I don't want to mess it up. Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Nailed it. But they have big books that have questions and answers for adults and kids. They have small books. We actually took these with us to Jordan. We've used these in our children's ministry before. Uh, They're small little books. I think these cost like 99 cents. And they have questions and answers uh, to help shape your hearts and your minds and the hearts and minds of your children. And they also have an app for your phone you could download And the app is free, and it has all the questions and answers in it, and the app also has all the songs in it. So there's a song with a question and answer for every single, or song with the, every question and answer. So some of them combine, like question 31 and 32 are one song together, but it's really good. It's a way you can help shape your kid's mind, and maybe in the new year, you can use one each week. It's kind of a lot if you try and do one each week, especially with littles, but You adults can do it. It'd be good for you. Take a gander at it. Download the app. Uh, We really like it. We use it in our house. Probably not as much as we should and as much as we'd like to, uh, but we we like it a lot. Um, I guess I'll introduce myself a little bit. My name's Joey Colon. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Bible Church. Uh, I'm Catherine's husband. I'm Claudia, Joseph, and Samuel's uh, daddy. And I feel like after this year especially, I don't know as much as you, or as many as you, as well as I should or would like to. So normally, you know, maybe I could show you a picture of my family, but I'm really, uh, really bad at taking family pictures. I just don't do a good job of it. So the best I can do for you is a picture of the kids, and I think you'll like that. Um, So here is a picture of Claudia, Joseph, and Samuel. Claudia turns... Five in just a few days. Can you believe that? Joseph turns three just a few days after Claudia, and Samuel just turned one a few weeks ago. So I figure we could probably just keep the picture of them up for the whole sermon. You probably don't really want to see me anyways, right? You'd rather see the kids, and it's gone. Look at that. They don't even listen to me, huh? Well, I want to talk to you. Dave asked me, I guess I have to confess something to you. And while I confess, why don't you turn in your Bibles to Luke uh, chapter 10. So while you're doing that, I want to admit that Dave asked me to preach uh, this week. He asked me to preach about New Year's resolutions or something in that vein, I think was probably how he said it. Um, But I have to tell you, I actually don't really like New Year's resolutions. I've never actually really liked New Year's resolutions. Um... I don't really know why I've never liked them. Maybe I've 
just thought they were superficial or they felt fake to me. Uh, but I just never liked them. Maybe it was because I realized I would never be good enough to actually do what I resolved to have done. Um, I, don't, I don't really know, but I haven't ever liked them. So when he asked me, I was like, I don't really know. So I was thinking through New Year's resolutions. I was thinking through, you know, what people might resolve. And some people might resolve, well, I'll, I'll eat better this year. Or I'll work out more this year. I'll lose weight. Or maybe your resolution has been more holy than that. And you've decided, uh, I'm going to read my Bible more. Or I'm going to pray more. I'm going to do a better job of being more holy this year. And I'm not here to knock New Year's resolutions and say that, you know, you shouldn't do them. I'd say some of those are good. Probably all of those are good. Some of them decidedly better than others. But um, I feel like, I guess, often they end up being, this year, I'm going to do this. This year, I'll, I'll work hard. I'll follow through this year. I'll do it. Um, so regardless, with that in mind, when Dave asked me to preach a New Year's resolution sermon, I actually said no. <laughs> I looked at him and I was like, no, I'm not preaching a New Year's resolution sermon uh, I won't do that. I'll preach for you, but I'm not doing a New Year's resolution sermon. And I guess I was joking a little bit, but I was kind of a little serious too. But here I am with a sermon, and it is titled, New Year, New Me. So, yes, I did it. I made the sacrifice. I'm preaching a New Year's resolution. I'll call it a New Year's resolution type sermon. How about that? Um, But it's my prayer that by God's grace we'll move past uh, superficial resolutions and that we'll hold fast to what I feel is um, probably the most important resolution that one could make. So if you would stand with me in honor and in reverence uh, for the reading of God's word. Today's reading, uh, you heard it already, comes from Luke chapter 10 and we start in verse 25. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's sufficient, that it guides us in righteousness. We ask that uh, 
you would speak to us today, that your word would go forth and that it would not return void as you promised. We thank you that we can look to you, the author and finisher of life, that we don't have to look to the law as our justification, that you fulfilled it on our behalf. Be with us, speak to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So this parable, I think, for most of you, for most of us, is probably very familiar. It's familiar not just to churchgoers, actually, it's familiar to people in the world too, right? You hear people being called a Good Samaritan. We have Good Samaritan laws even, right? It's something that most people, if you talk to them, would have heard about. You probably could recite most of the Good Samaritan, or at least some of it, Um, but I think when we do that, when we hear something over and over, we kind of miss the point, or we at least forget the point of it, right? So before we get into the Good Samaritan uh, story and that surrounding context, I want to set a little bit of a larger context for us, set the scene for us, the background uh, for where we are in the book of Luke. So Jesus, in this part of Luke, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is traveling on his way to Jerusalem, and not just, not just like a trip to Jerusalem to go visit somebody, he's actually on his way to the cross. That's actually the context for most of the book of Luke. It's a strange gospel. His gospel, um, starting in chapter 9, Jesus is already on his way to Jerusalem, already on his way to the cross. Uh, D.A. Carson calls it the shadow of the impending cross is what the setting for a lot of Luke is. Um, So this story is actually one of the first. Is that me or somebody else? It's me. All right. Well, hopefully that didn't blow your eardrums out at home. But this story is actually one of the first stories that happens in the shadow of Jesus traveling to the cross. Uh, It's it's uh, Luke chapter 10 is where we're at. We just read the story. I don't know if I'm going to be able to deal with that. I might have to take a handheld. Um, so he's on his way to Jerusalem, and Jesus is going there in order to establish his kingdom. But it's not a kingdom like you or like I would think of. Actually, kids, if you were here a few years ago, I don't know, maybe it's been more than a few, four years ago, maybe you're not even kids anymore. But we did a vacation Bible school, a VBS And we called it the Upside Down Kingdom, which is the kingdom that Jesus is establishing here. It's not like what we would think. It's completely different than anything we know or we think. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's meeting people. He's healing people. We're going to switch out. Check, 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 check. Kendrick wants me to have a different one. I'm going to keep going until they bring it. But Jesus is establishing his kingdom. He's, he's on his way to Jerusalem and on his way to the cross. And as he's traveling in that direction, he's telling people about his kingdom that's coming. He's healing people. Uh, he's feeding people. He's telling them stories about his kingdom and how they can be a part of his kingdom. And he sends his disciples to do the same. He sends his disciples ahead of him to do the same. And so in this part of the chapter, earlier in chapter 10, Jesus has just sent out 72 of his disciples uh, to go and to tell people about this kingdom. And he gives them powers and he tells them, go and tell people about this upside down kingdom, this kingdom that's different. And they come back to him and they're rejoicing and they're excited. They're excited because demons even listen to them and they cast out demons in his name. And Jesus actually tells them, Don't rejoice because of that. Don't rejoice because demons answer you. He tells them, rejoice because your name is written in my book. Rejoice because God has chosen to reveal himself to you. 
And so that's the, the context of Luke leading up to where we are. And let's look back at our text. Join me in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. So behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Now, a lawyer isn't quite what we would think of as a lawyer. In some sense, the lawyer is kind of like it. He was charged with knowing the law and and keeping the law and and kind of even enforcing the law. Uh, But in some sense, he's more than that. He's more like uh, what we would call a theologian, uh, one who studied God's word, one who studied the scriptures. He knew the law. So I'm going to say we should think of him as a lawyer theologian. So he, he was a lawyer, but in more than the sense that we would think. So this lawyer theologian stands up and puts Jesus to the test. You can imagine Jesus is sitting there. Remember our context in the beginning of chapter 10. He's sitting with his disciples. He's teaching them. He's speaking with them, praying with them. Uh, he's teaching them things. And this lawyer theologian stands up, which... I guess seems a little bit weird, a little odd or out of place in our context, but really it's much like a, a student standing up, or not standing up, sorry, a student raising their hand up for a teacher. They raise their hand, they wait patiently to be recognized, and, and the teacher recognizes them, and then they ask their question. This is actually really similar. So standing up was actually a mark of respect. So this lawyer stands up with a mark of respect, of cultural respect, I guess, and he waits to be recognized, and Jesus recognizes him, and he answers his question. But we know from the text this lawyer was actually not really being respectful, right? This lawyer is actually trying to put Jesus to the test. He's trying to trip Jesus up. Um, He's trying to get Jesus to do something that goes against the law or to say something that goes against the law. And how better to do it than how he asks? He asks the question, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? See, the the lawyer theologian here is trying to get Jesus to subvert the law, to say that he's the king, or maybe to say that you can only get to the Father through him. He's trying to get Jesus to fall for a trap that he has made. And we'll see in a moment that Jesus doesn't actually fall for the trap, but I want to look back for just a minute uh, and see what it reveals, what this lawyer's question reveals about him what it reveals about his heart. So did you catch the, I guess, nuance in his question that the theologian asked? He asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? See, the lawyer knew the law. We talked about that already. He was a theologian, right? He studied it. He was a student of the law. Uh, He knew what he had to do, and he knew the answer to his question was to follow the law. He knew that. He said, if I need to do something in order to inherit eternal life, it's follow the law. And he knew to follow it perfectly. So Jesus flips the question back on the lawyer theologian. He says to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So maybe an alternate reading of this question might be, you're the expert. You're the expert in the law. You are the theologian. Why don't you tell me? What would you say the answer is? And the lawyer answers from the law. He answers from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. 
And his answer will probably sound familiar to most of you. In fact, it's an answer that Jesus gives. He gives it to a different question, right? In Mark 12, um, it's, it's the summary of the law that Jesus gives. He says that the entirety of the law can be summed up in these two commands. The commands are what the lawyer theologian answers to Jesus' question of how do you read it. It's to love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So he knew the answer was to fulfill the law. And Jesus says to him in verse 28, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. So there you have it, folks. The answer to what you must do to get eternal life. You want a New Year's resolution? You want a New Year's resolution sermon, Dave? Here it is. Jesus just gave you two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. End of sermon. My work here is done. Let's pray. Right? But surely this isn't what Jesus meant. At least, sort of, right? I know that, and if you've been here for any amount of time, I think you probably know that too. And actually, you know who I know knows this? The kids. Kids, you know this, right? You sang it in your song. The song you sang starts off with the knowledge that no one can do what Jesus just told this man to do. You know what else I know? I know that the lawyer theologian knew this too. And how I know it? Because of what happens next. Verse 29 through 35, read it with me. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So, likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. You see what the lawyer was doing? He was desiring to justify himself. So he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He already knew. I didn't make the cut. I can't meet the standard. Notice that he didn't even try and touch the first commandment, right? The love of the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind strength. I'm not going to pretend to know why he didn't touch that part. Maybe he thought, "I'm, I'm a theologian. I know this. I got it. Or maybe he thought, that's too hard, I can't even do it. Maybe he thought, it's in the bag. I don't know. I won't pretend to know what he was thinking for that. But I think we do, from the text, know what he was thinking about the second part. That pesky little love your neighbor part, right? That part of the equation to inherit eternal life. The text makes it clear what he was thinking. He asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And he does that out of another bad motive too, right? Remember the first bad motive was to trip Jesus up. He asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life to try and trip Jesus up? And now 
he's got another bad motive to justify himself. See, he knew what the law required, but he allowed himself to limit the scope. See, he, he took the loving your neighbor part and said, maybe if I just love these neighbors, maybe if I just love these certain people. He wanted Jesus to answer him and say, well done, you've identified who you must love. Go love those people who you deem worthy. Well done, you're good, you've got it. Actually, he wanted Jesus to say, don't worry about anybody else. He wanted him to say, I give you liberty to hate those whom you deem worthy of hate. But that's not what Jesus answered. Jesus began his answer to the lawyer theologian with, with the question, which we'll see uh, later. But he starts that, his answer, by telling this story. And I think that'll help us work this out a little more. So Jesus replies the story, like we've been reading. A man's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed leaving him half dead. So Jesus' story he tells starts out pretty rough. Um, it starts off with a man traveling down a road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And, and I've never been on this actual road, but I've actually been very close to this road. Actually, looking up where it was this week, I realized I was really close to this road. Uh, I have a picture, actually, of Angie and one of our missionary friends looking off towards Jerusalem. This is actually where they're standing is maybe two miles away from Jericho. And so we're just on the other side of the Jordan River, and they're looking up. If you look where the sunset is, you can see the mountains. And at the tip of that mountain is where Jerusalem is. It was a long journey. It was, it was a, a huge change in elevation. It was a rough road. I want to show you a picture from the other side. Now, this picture, because I haven't been on this road, I didn't take but this is a picture from Jerusalem looking down uh, to Jericho. And you can see that in this picture, you can see the roads rough. It's got a lot of downhill. It's got a little hidey spots. And so this story makes sense. And I was hoping you seeing it might make some sense. But really, the condition of the road or this road being a bad place to travel isn't really the point of the story. Uh, you know, you can see how bad it looks. But it's beside the point. The point is that this man was traveling. He was attacked. He was robbed. Everything was taken from him. He was stripped. He was beaten. He's left for dead. The man in the story is left in one of the worst possible, possible situations you could imagine. He's in a bad position in his life. And I decided I wouldn't make 2020 jokes in this sermon, but I guess if there's going to be a place for one, this is it. You might think 2020 was bad for you, right? But this guy had it way worse. So it's not really a joke, but it's a 2020 reference. How about that? But he's lying there half dead. He's lying there likely unconscious, helpless, stripped, bleeding, and with nothing. He's in the lowest of the low. The point is that here's somebody who clearly could use some help. Verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road. There's hope. By chance is there to elicit the feeling of hope. So you can imagine you're the lawyer hearing the story about a man traveling who's taken advantage of, and then you hear, by chance, a priest was walking down the road. Surely this man will do the right thing, right? You might think, this is a man of God. He's, he's one of my contemporaries. Surely he'll do the right thing. Or maybe you can imagine being that person on the side of the road. 
lying there, half dead, likely unconscious, helpless, stripped, bleeding with nothing. You're at your lowest of your low, and by chance, a priest was walking towards you. Surely this priest will help me. After all, he's a man of God, right? And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. The priest, when he sees him, crosses to the other side and passes by. If you've read commentaries or studied this passage before, you you might have heard theories on why the priest passed by. Maybe, you know, he had just finished his two-week stint in Jerusalem and he's traveling back home and he didn't want to come near a body and become unclean or maybe he needed to be with his family quickly or any number of reasons are given But I think all of those also miss the point. I think all those theories miss the point because the point is simple, right? The point is painfully simple. I think the point is that the man who you would think to help doesn't help. The man who obviously should have been the one to help. He was a good guy. If anyone was going to help, it was going to be this man, and he doesn't. The man who should have helped passed by on the other side. I think that's the point. And in verse 32, So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So Levite's not a priest, uh, but he's in the priest hierarchy. He was more like an assistant to the priest, right? So maybe lowest man on the totem pole in the priest hierarchy, but still a good man. Surely he would help, right? Maybe the priest was just a bad apple, The Levite's coming. Surely this Levite will help. But likewise, the Levite crosses and passes by on the other side. So the two men who could help, the two men who should have helped, the two men who who this story should be giving you hope about come upon a man who's helpless, who's injured, and don't help. And then verse 33, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, He had compassion. I'm sorry, a what? That would have been the response. A Samaritan? Notice I didn't even say a who. I guess a what is actually probably proper. But they didn't even think of Samaritans as people, right? Christy told you in the story that they were the the lowest of the low to the Jews. They were the worst. They're half-breeds who perverted God's law. These were actually mortal enemies of the Jews, the Samaritans. They were actually the ones that the Jews were allowed to hate, right? They had that person that they could hate. It was a Samaritan. Calling someone a Samaritan was one of the worst insults you could actually give to someone. You could throw at someone. In John 8, the Jews are attacking Jesus. They're trying to slander him. What do they say? Aren't we correct in saying that you're demon-possessed and a Samaritan? So I guess a Samaritan's bad. A demon-possessed Samaritan would actually be worse. But there. This man was the worst. He was the lowest. You'll remember even in uh, John 4, right? Jesus, the woman at the well, he goes and asks her for a drink. And she says, why would you ask me for a drink? And what do we see in the parentheses? Because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, right? So this Samaritan is scum, right? He's garbage. He's a Samaritan dog. But this scum sees the man on the side of the road, and he doesn't pass by on the other side. So this lawyer's thinking, you are telling me that this Samaritan had compassion 
but the priest and the Levite didn't. This Samaritan had stirrings in his heart towards this man, but the priest and the Levite didn't. The people who should have helped didn't. But he didn't just feel bad for the man on the side of the road. The Samaritans moved to action. Verse 34. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So this Samaritan doesn't just feel bad for the man, which we don't even hear about from the priest or theologian, but this Samaritan gets down off of his own animal, right? Maybe a donkey, some beast of burden, a horse or something. And he bends down and he helps the man. He takes out his oil and his wine and he lavishly pours it out over the man's wounds. And he likely tears his own clothes in order to make cloths to bandage up and bind the man's wounds. And he puts the injured man up on his donkey and he walks by on the side of the road. And he, he takes the man, he travels with him to an inn And he doesn't just drop him off there. He stays with him. He stays with him all night long. And in the next morning, he pays the man's debt. He pays the innkeeper for him. And he doesn't just pay him for that day or that night. He pays him a large sum of money that could care for the man for the next week or so. So he loves the man richly, but he doesn't just stop in loving him in that moment. He tells the innkeeper, care for the man. And when I come back, when I return... I'll pay for any debt he's incurred. He spares no expense. Because, you see, if the man had been left in the inn and he was injured and he racked up a debt, the only way for him to pay off that debt would have become a servant of the innkeeper, a slave of the innkeeper. So the Samaritan, in loving this man, doesn't just save the man from certain death on the side of the road, but the Samaritan, in paying his debt, he also saves the man from slavery. This love that the Samaritan lavishes on the man, the man that the priest walked by, the man that the Levite walked by, the Samaritan dog, the Samaritan scum, loves lavishly. So I want to go back to the question that brought us here, the question the lawyer asked Jesus in order to justify himself, the question that leads Jesus to tell the story, this parable. It's, who is my neighbor and I, I guess I wonder why, and maybe the lawyer was wondering why, Jesus couldn't just look at him and say, it's this neighbor right here. Go love them, and you'll be good. This one right here, that's the one who needs love. And I also wonder sometimes why Jesus doesn't just look to us and say, your black neighbor is hurting, it's them. Or your Asian neighbor is hurting, it's them. Or your Hispanic neighbor or your neighbor who's experiencing homelessness or job loss, why doesn't he look at us and say, it's, it's that neighbor right there, the one who's sick, or the one who has pre-existing health conditions? Why doesn't he just look to us and just tell us who our neighbor is? Why can't he just answer this lawyer's question? I think the answer is that God doesn't limit the scope of who your neighbor is. And because of that, you don't get to either. Because God doesn't limit the scope of who your neighbor is. And you don't get to either. 
Join me in verse 36. So Jesus answers the man. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He, Jesus said, or he, the lawyer says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So do you see what Jesus did? The lawyer theologian asked, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells him this whole story to ask the man this question. He doesn't answer the man's question because that's not how his kingdom works. Remember, it's an upside down kingdom. It's different than we think of. You don't get to pick and choose who your neighbors are. See, he thought he got to pick and choose his neighbors, love the people that he wanted to love, hate the people he wanted to hate. It's not how it worked. He asked the man, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? So the question isn't even who is my neighbor, it's who was a neighbor. Not who is my neighbor, who was a neighbor. But the story isn't even really about who was a neighbor. It's a story about being a neighbor. You know what I think is, is sad about this story is that the lawyer has so much hate in his heart for the Samaritan that he can't even utter the words, it's the Samaritan is the one who was the neighbor. How does he reply? He says, the one who showed mercy. But Jesus still answers the man's question, and really, he's still answering the first question, the question about eternal life. He says, go and do likewise. Go and love lavishly like this man did. But not just sometimes, not even most of the time, he's telling him always. He's telling him love perfectly. You want eternal life? There you go. That's what you must do. You want to know? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Always. Perfectly. The lawyer theologian knew he couldn't do it. He knew he couldn't keep the law. He knew he couldn't love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he knew he couldn't love his neighbor as himself. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it imperfectly. Couldn't even do it perfectly let alone perfectly. So he tried to find a way to work it out on his own. He looked for a loophole, right? We look for those. I know when I've done New Year's resolutions, I look for loopholes too. But we have guilt. He had guilt. He wanted to know, what can I do to get out of it? The lawyer couldn't do it. You know who else couldn't do it? I couldn't do it. Me. You know who else who can't do it? You. You can't do it. But if no one can keep the law, what's its purpose? What's the answer, kids? You know it, right? That we may know the holy nature of God and the sinful nature of our hearts and thus our need for a Savior. That, friends, for me is the really sad part of the story. This lawyer theologian missed the purpose of the law. He thought the law was there to show him how to be good enough, to show him how to inherit eternal life, and he missed it. He missed that the law shows us God's holiness, shows us God's sinfulness, and shows us our need, our need for a Savior. 
I think the reason it's so sad for me is because this lawyer theologian was standing in front of that Savior. This lawyer theologian had the greatest neighbor in front of him, the goodest neighbor in front of him. The one who would leave heaven to bend down to us. The one who loves us lavishly. Who not only pays our debts and rescues us from slavery to sin, but who takes our place. The one who was beaten, stripped, and killed in our place. But instead of calling out, like the tax collector later on in Luke, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, It's the end of the lawyer-theologian story. We don't hear from him anymore. What's the next part? Jesus and his disciples go on his way. That's what you'll read next in Luke chapter 10. This man had the greatest neighbor standing in front of him. And that was it. That's the end of the story. So if that's you today, if you see yourself in this story, if you're realizing your need for a Savior... Don't let your story end like the lawyer-theologian story. Don't. We'd love to talk to you about it more. I know we're not here in person today, but, I mean, you can comment in the chat. You can email us at office at begrace.org. You can call the office phone, 254-690-1728. Don't stay. Don't let your story end like the lawyer-theologian's story end. We want to talk to you about the greatest neighbor. We want to talk to you about this Savior. So contact us. Contact someone you know who knows the Savior. So if I'm going to endorse a new year, new me, that's the one I'll endorse, okay? So if you see yourself in this story, please talk to us. Talk to somebody. For the rest of us, what about the resolutions? I thought this was a New Year's sermon. Joey, did you trick me? I don't know. Well, friends... It's kind of funny how that works, I feel like. See, while you can't do it on your own, you can't follow the law perfectly. You can't do anything to inherit eternal life. Jesus still calls us to do it. He calls you to die to yourself, to take up your cross daily and to follow him, to lay down your life, to lay down your preferences for others. Sure, you won't do it perfectly, but as you love God and you love your neighbor, as you follow him, you become more and more like him until one day you're with him. So I'll say to you, like the reformers, yes, you're saved by grace alone. Yes, it's through faith alone, but such faith never remains alone. So if you're making a goal or a resolution for this year, here it is. I'll give it to you. Make it to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but not to justify yourself because Christ and God loved you first. If you want to make another goal, here it is. To love your neighbor as yourself, but not to justify yourself because Christ and God was a neighbor to you first. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for showing us stories and revealing truth about our hearts. We ask that we wouldn't leave unchanged. 
that we would see what you would have for us and that we would go and do. We ask that because of your love, we would love you and that because of your love, we would be able to love our neighbors. We thank you for your son, whom we just celebrated coming to earth, that we can look forward to his death and his resurrection and his return. Father, bless us and keep us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.